The Landry Line is over 4,000 vertical feet of skiing to the valley floor, and it doesn't get much better than that. And, you know, the fact that it's pretty steep the whole way down is it's just an, an amazing ski. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 106, Skiing All of Colorado's 14ers with Brittany and Frank Consella. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today is a really cool show. Now, if you go back in the archives, you'll find that we interviewed Jerry Roach about climbing all the 14ers, writing the 14er book, as well as climbing mountains all over the world. We also interviewed Jeff Golden with the Colorado Mountain Club about climbing all the 14ers. But today we have a couple, Brittany and Frank Consella, who not only have climbed all the 14ers, but they're... <laughs> One of the few, or two of the few, on the planet that can say that they've actually skied all the 14ers. Brittany and Frank, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. I am really excited about today's show because it combines probably my two favorite sports, skiing and 14ers. And skiing the 14ers, I mean, there's it's got to be just crazy. But before we dive into the details of that, Brittany grew up in Ohio. She started skiing at the age of four. She ended up coming to Colorado and uh, was a freestyle competitor at Winter Park. And then Frank grew up in the front range of Colorado, started skiing when he was three. And he was also a ski racer at Winter Park, but they did not meet there. They met because of skiing the 14ers. And I would like them to introduce themselves and tell us that story. So take it from there, Brittany. So basically, it was, in 2006, I came up with this goal of trying to ski all of Colorado's 14ers. Um, Chris Davenport was um, in the middle of his uh, 14er skiing goal as well. Um, so I was certainly inspired by that. However, when I began my goal, I didn't really have um, very many backcountry ski partners that could actually help me accomplish it. Um, you need to have a lot of skills, uh, more mountaineering skills, and um, I didn't really you know, know very many people who had that. So I had to reach out to some people, um, and one of those people that I reached out to was Frank, and um, that's basically how we met. I was looking for partners uh, to help me ski all the 14ers. So Frank, what's your angle on that story? I was already living in Crested Butte and was I had actually already climbed, um, hiked all the 14ers um, when I was at CU. I had finished, well, in high school too. So I had already done all that and, and I was just kind of skiing whatever I felt like. And um, the way that we really met is that uh, some friends and I had skied Pyramid and we were one of the first groups to do so. So we ended up with this little blurb on uh, Lou Dawson's website, Wild Snow. And that's actually, Brittany saw that and was like, oh, one of those guys could probably probably ski some of the 14ers with me. And that's that's actually the longer version. So, And the even longer version is that um, I ended up cyber-stalking him and <laughs> found his information. 
I found his information on the uh, Teton Gravity Research Ski Forums, and I was already well connected on that on that ski forum, and found out he was on there and reached out to him through there. Well, that's fun. And as far as I know, you're the only couple on the planet who met because you like to ski 14ers. Yep. <laughs> Could be the case. Yeah, I mean, some of the other couples involved, um, you know, they definitely already knew each other when they started their projects. Um, so, and which is cool too, you know, just to be able to share that project. But I, we definitely met because of this project. Let's talk about skiing 14ers. First of all, for those who don't know much about 14ers, you can listen to those previous episodes and you'll learn a ton about the sport of climbing 14ers. And then if you want to learn about backcountry skiing and some of the skills involved to do that safely, then you can listen to our episode by Greg Floyd about backcountry skiing. But combining these two sports together is uh, really unique. So, uh, Frank, tell us a little bit about what the 14er sport is and what special skills are required to be able to ski some of these mountains. Well, it's that's what makes it kind of uh, interesting and fun. It, it it does involve mountaineering, um, so climbing up them actually ended up being the harder part for me. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I've got a long ski background growing up racing and, and growing up in Colorado. Uh, and I did, you know, I, I've done, like anyone in Colorado, I've dabbled in, in some rock climbing and, and, and whatnot, and I had climbed all the 14ers in the summer, but uh, getting to the tops of the peaks is kind of the harder part and getting them, you know, when they're, when they're in shape to ski. So there's all those different facets and you're trying to combine them all in order to make for a good climb and ski, um, which is the challenging part and actually the fun part. And it makes it a little bit of a, of, um, of a chess game in, in addition to just, you know, the actual physical aspects. I have climbed several of the 14ers in the wintertime, but I've only skied two of them and I didn't climb them on skis for the most part, I'm usually on snowshoes, but um, I find that access is one of the hardest things because, you know, the, the roads that go to the trailheads are, are blocked off by the snowdrifts generally through the winter. So how do you solve that problem? Maybe, Brittany, you'd like to take this one. Well, you try to time your um, when you want to actually climb the peak to when those roads are open, if possible. I mean, we didn't climb all of them in the winter for that reason. Sometimes we knew that certain lines would be better to access in the spring um, because, uh, you know, trying to deal with some of those road closures. Um, there are other instances where we use that road closure to our favor and sometimes accessed uh, the actual trailhead using snowmobiles. Um, so, you know, we'd go up on the road that had snow um, that could normally drive in the summer, but since it had snow cover on it, you know, we would take snow wheels instead. Oh, that would help. Yeah. We didn't do that a whole lot. We did it only a few times, but um, it definitely helped. Cool. Let's talk about the season for this a little bit. I do know that people ski 14ers every month of the year, and it's not just a winter sport. But when you say that you've skied a 14er, did you establish any guidelines like I have to ski a certain percentage of the 14er or I have to do it um, a certain time of the year or anything like that? The time of the year wasn't necessarily, um, you know, important to us. I think our range was typically uh, started from November and into June, um, but most of them we actually, I feel like, did in March, April, 
May, I think, probably. Yeah, the vast majority were those three months in June, early the first week or so of June. Um, and as far as establishing what we considered a, a skiing a 14er to be, um, I'd say we tried to ski at least a thousand feet. I really tried to prefer more like 1300 feet, um, at a minimum. And uh, for the listeners who may not know, the 14ers have a variety of base elevations and some of them you, you start hiking at 10,000 feet. Some of them you start hiking at 5,000 feet. So, um, you can, I mean, you know, some of them have 9,000 vertical feet of elevation gain, and some of them only have a, a few thousand that you can actually um, hike up or ski down. So if you're skiing 1,000 feet, then that's a, that's a pretty good run. Yeah, I mean, if there was snow cover, we always tried to ski more, but sometimes there wasn't quite enough snow cover, or there's some that you end up skiing together, such as Oxford and Belford, um, so, you know, we would try to ski a thousand to 1300 feet before we started going up and climbing up to the next mountain. Mm, okay. So you tried to go down and then back up again to go down again when you had the combo mountain routes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, most summer climbers, like say on Oxford Belford, they'll, they'll climb one. They'll just take the ridge between the two. We tried to do a little bit more than that, but it was usually kind of a case by case Basis, you know, if you're skiing a face and then it goes down into a into the valley and it's no longer really skiing, even though you could continue down a valley. Once the turns are done, we kind of called it good and would start start up for the next one. But all right, so the the Colorado Fourteeners, um, they can all be climbed without putting on ropes and being technical in the summertime in good conditions. Some of them, like Pyramid that you mentioned, are pretty sketchy. People do rope up for Pyramid sometimes and. When you climb those in the winter, though, that's a whole nother ball game. How much mountaineering skill did you have to um, perfect before you were able to start doing these? Well, um, yeah, and I, I kind of mentioned that earlier. That's kind of the weak point for both of us is is the mountaineering uh, versus the skiing. But we both had a good, you know, background and continued to learn on as we did it too. Um, and in some cases, with snow cover, it can actually be easier. I mean, Little Bear is commonly um, described as one of the more difficult 14ers in the summer. But in in good snow cover, it's actually, you know, just, just climbing snow with, with crampons and an ice axe. Um, and it's actually, I think, probably easier having done them in both seasons. So, I don't know. Um, you know, to improve our mountaineering skills, I mean, I think, that was something we kind of worked at. I mean, for me, it was a five-year project, so I definitely kind of worked on improving my mountains, mountaineering skills along the way. Um, I did take some ice climbing courses, which really helped on um, more icy and exposed terrain. It helped me feel more comfortable using my crampons correctly, even when I wasn't roped up. Um we did definitely rope up for capital. Frank and I um, ended up skiing that peak separate. Um, but in both cases, both teams um, of skiers did rope up. Um, it does require a rappel on the route that we took. Um, so just, you know, being familiar with rope handling and ice climbing and things like that, they're they're not absolutely necessary until you get to something like capital, but I think it really, really does help to have some of those skills, um, you know, a solid foundation for those skills. So you made an interesting point there that you had to repel 
a little bit on the route that you did on Capital to get to the the run that you wanted to do. How hard is it to find a safe and reasonable route to ski these 14ers? A lot of them do have kind of a standard route or even multiple standard routes. Uh, many of them are in uh, Lou Dawson's guidebooks. And then along the way, I mean, people have been finding different routes and better routes. Um, when I skied Capital, that was the first time that route had been skied from from the summit. And then it's kind of ended up becoming the standard route. Um, a good friend of ours, Jarrett Luttrell, he's the first one to snowboard all the 14ers. And the route that he took on El Diente, um, no one really knew about it. I'm sure some locals down in that Telluride area probably did. But um, So he ended up snowboarding that and told us about it. And we went back and did it. Um, that was actually the second time I skied El Diente, but whatever the case, that's kind of ended up becoming a very popular route on that peak as well. So it's kind of, it's been interesting to watch kind of a progression really of where people are skiing on the 14ers. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. Winter is just around the corner. Do you have the outdoor performance wear that you need? Shed the layers and keep the warmth with Sport Hill Performance running, skiing, and outdoor apparel. Sport Hill gear is worn by Olympic champions and elite athletes. Independently owned since 1985, Sport Hill is passionate about clothing for the sports you love. I have to bring up the safety issues. Um, avalanches are a, a very real danger at altitude, especially in the in the wintertime. And choosing a route that you can ski without having the mountain come down on you seems pretty important. What um, precautions did you practice to try to stay safe? I think the primary precaution is um, being able to forecast avalanche conditions to begin with. You know, we were always on CIAC and NOAA and watching the weather and, you know, near peaks that we knew we had to ski. Um, so we were always forecasting what we thought the avalanche conditions would be. Um, that's the number one priority thing. You need to be able to forecast that sort of thing. Um, then, of course, when you're actually on the mountain itself, um, just timing is important. A lot of times in the springtime, you're not so worried about you know, the same kind of avalanches in the winter. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we would time our descents for spring rather than winter because in spring you have to, you have more, uh, you have less of a chance of um, a deeper 
slab avalanche and more of a chance of possibly wet slides. However, the wet slides are usually easily avoided by just going earlier and making sure you're not on the mountain later in the day. Um, and then, you know, of course, just taking precautions like skiing one at a time and stopping in safe zones along the way. Right. Um, I tried to climb Mount Sherman in the wintertime. Many people would agree is the easiest 14er. And we had, I think, a nine-mile approach just to get to the trailhead on the route that we chose. And it had been snowing a lot. And on this approach, there were avalanche runouts on both sides of the valley, uh, probably by the dozen. I mean, there just a lot of avalanches had been coming down. And we were trying to stay off the avalanche terrain, but somewhere near the, the saddle, the final shoulder to the approach, um, the whole mountain sank about a foot and, and shifted and stopped. And, man, we ran and dove to grab some, some solid rocks to hang on to because we thought the whole thing was going with this. And it, it, it shook me up a little bit, to be really candid. I don't know if you had similar experiences, but it made me really keenly aware of how easy it is to get into trouble on these mountains like that. Yeah, that's why we chose, I think, to ski a lot of them in the spring when avalanche danger, you know, you, you wouldn't get, like, basically, it, you wouldn't even get that sort of conditions where a lot of times, you know, where, where the whole mountain would just collapse on you like that. Yeah, it was probably it was probably our own faults being foolhardy. We didn't forecast it enough. The avalanche danger was clearly too high that day, and it was snowing. <laughs> and so yeah. we had poor visibility to boot. So a long story short, um, I did not summit that day, which is probably good. We just decided to get off the mountain and, and choose a, a safe route to do so. And we came back the next summer and, and climbed in and kind of laughed that that was the first 14er to turn us around was the easiest 14er in Colorado. <laughs> it's not always as easy in the winter, so you, you had that going for you. Well, it just shows you how important conditions, you know, are, you know, to plan, try to plan your trip to optimize your success to have the best conditions that you can. Oh, yeah, very much so. Why would you encourage people to try skiing the 14ers? I don't know if I'd necessarily encourage anyone to do it unless they wanted to for one, but, um, you know, if you're a good, strong skier and you've got some mountaineering skills, then it's an awfully fun way to go about it, um, with a very, I mean, in the summer they've become so popular, you're going to, you know, you'll be on the summit with 10, 20, 100, maybe even a hundred people in, in spring, in the winter while you're skiing, um, it's pretty likely you'll be the only group on them or, you know, even on some of the popular ones, maybe there's just going to be one or two other groups at least. Um, and of course, skiing down beats walking down. <laughs> oh man. You know, walking down is so hard on the joints. My knees struggle a little bit with the walks down. And, uh, in the wintertime when I can glissade or ski, I just like, wow, that was awesome. You get down so fast. Yep. The other thing to mention is I think, we're more proponents of just having some sort of goals to follow. I think more than just skiing the 14ers, it's just so important to have goals. It just helps you accomplish so many things in certain areas of your life. Um, and when you do accomplish those goals, it makes you feel successful and that transfers to other aspects as well. Um, so, you know, whether somebody's skiing the 14ers or they've decided on a different sort of goal, I think having a goal like that is is that we encourage that more, actually. You know, that's really neat. That's a common theme on the Adventure Sports Podcast. 
it's not just a matter of accomplishing your adventure sport goal because what you end up doing is gaining so much um, new self-awareness and understanding and new skills and you find out that you can do more than you thought you could and that translates to the rest of life. So I think getting out there and doing things and having goals like you described is a fantastic way to make life richer and more enjoyable and it's not just about the sport itself. Exactly. Tell us a story about a very amazing experience that you had on uh, on a 14er, skiing a 14er, and tell us what it's really like. This is this is when we want to have a camcorder out, right? And we want the play-by-play. So, Brittany, why don't you go first? Well, you know, both Frank and I say um, that our most favorite 14er is Pyramid Peak. Um, Frank has now skied it twice. I've only had the opportunity to ski it once. But, you know, it, it just stands out as the best descent ever. Um, you know, going leading up to it, I had actually tried it um, a couple times before and had not been successful. Um, once because I was just too tired from having done um, another ski the day before and basically had not slept um, between the two skis. And um, it was a really cold day and my water froze and all the things were just telling me I needed to turn around. So I did, um, went back a couple years later. Um, and then we actually got shut down by some bad weather that came in a little bit earlier than was forecasted. So finally, third time was the charm and it ended up being my second to last 14 er. Um, and it was something that I was looking forward to the whole time. It, you know, I knew it was going to be a good ski. Everybody told me it was, you know, such an awesome peak. You look at all the, all the photos of other people skiing it. And I just knew it was going to be, you know, awesome. Um, you know, the ascent went pretty much as planned. I'd been most of the way up that mountain before, um, just had to get to the top. Um, definitely there's a crux move as you're ascending, um, where the rocks are pretty loose. It's a little icy, um, you know, but that crux is only about five minutes or maybe 10 from what I remember. And the rest of the climb is just fun. And then once you're at the top, you see the line below you and it just, it just drops off into nowhere. Like it rolls over. It's pretty steep. Some people say it's 60 degrees. I think it's probably more like 55, but it's that total airy feeling where it rolls over and you feel like you're skiing into an abyss. And, um, and then you just start skiing down and, you know, it just, it's, it's steep for a long ways until you get to a crux. And we actually descend a different line than we ascend. And then we ascended, um, we descended via the Landry line, whereas we ascended more the summer route. Um, so when you descend, you haven't, we had, we didn't actually know exactly what conditions were going to be. Um, and this crux point is kind of important because it gets just a little tight in there. And sometimes it's, um, it, it's the first part to melt out in the line. So you're never totally sure if it actually goes or not. Um, but it did for us and we skied right through it. And then, um, from there on out, it gets a little less steep, but it's still a fun ski all the way down. Um, it's over. The Landry line is over 4,000 vertical feet of skiing um, to the valley floor, um, and it doesn't get much better than that. And, you know, the fact that it's pretty steep the whole way down is it's just an, an amazing ski. Wow. You know, having climbed Pyramid, I have to say that that's the one that stood out to me um, as 
I, I don't know what their line was that you skied. I don't know what the route was or what it looks like with snow on it. But the summer route that I took where you go through the saddle and wrap around the backside of the mountain and zigzag up all the different rock shelves to get to the top. Um, with enough snow, that might be awesome. But I'm just looking at it going, wow, that could be really, really gnarly. So were you skiing more of the front side of the mountain on the way down? Um, we were skiing the east side. Yeah, so it's the opposite of what's normally normally climbed in the in the North Amphitheater. It's on the other side to the East Maroon Valley. Right. Okay. But you didn't ascend there, you de- you descended there. Correct. Yep. Well, that's that does sound fantastic. Um that's just a spectacular peak. It's the only mountain where I've seen someone take a fall that would have killed him, but he uh fell onto a rope, luckily. It's also the only mountain where mountain goats almost killed me because they triggered a, a rock slide above us. Wow. <laughs> so it's just a crazy mountain all the way around. Well, Frank, what's your story? Uh, boy, that's how, I've been trying to think about it. I'm having a really hard time because just a flood of memories comes comes back at me. And it, maybe that actually kind of answers the question you asked previously about um, about why you might want to ski the 14ers. And I just have all these different memories of, of, uh, you know, there was going up to Lindsay and there's a little, um, there's like a little crevice in the rocks and there's, there's all these, um, crucifixes and stuff. So you feel like you're in Mexico (laughs) for some reason that, that always comes back to me as this really stark memory of, of that trip. And, uh, you know, I have, I really remember, um, actually skiing, um, the dead dog route, which is very popular on Tories. And that was, I was still in, in uh, college at that point. So I was skiing that on, you know, 205 skinny skis because this is, that was a long time ago. Right. Um, just every mountain range, I have all these different memories, which, which, um, that, uh, and that's why you do it because, you, because it does get you out of, you know, as we talked about, you, it forces you to go out and do all these different things. And I have all these different memories of them. And, and some of them don't even necessarily have to do with the skiing. I mean, I remember pulling over um, after a successful ski. Uh, down the San Luis Valley, and there was just a sunset, and I was just like, "Wow, I got to pull over and just just enjoy this moment." So um, I don't know, maybe that's not the answer you were looking for, but that's all I could keep thinking of was was all the different memories and all these little snippets that that came along the way. Well, no, that's a great answer, and again, it's about adventure sports. Whatever we're doing, if it gets us outside, it gets us to new locations where we see things we wouldn't see otherwise. It's just amazing what experiences you have when you have an excuse to get out, right? Right, exactly. And out of your home range, which, you know, that's the other, you know, that's the other great thing about it, you know, if you live in Denver and you're always skiing Birthday Pass or whatever, that's that's great, but it's great to, you know, suddenly find yourself in the San Juans or or the Elks or or wherever. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Outdoor Pursuits is the adventure hub of Fort Lewis College. 
This comprehensive collegiate outdoor program not only offers an extensive outdoor equipment co-op that provides everything from tents to kayaks and ski gear to mountain bikes, but also offers a varied trip calendar that includes both instructional and recreational outings from climbing some of the world's highest peaks to enjoying Durango's amazing hiking and mountain biking trails. Our experienced and friendly staff are always up for an adventure and are a great resource for those planning their own outings. Visit the Fort Lewis College website for more information on what Outdoor Pursuits is all about. And remember, adventure is not in the guidebook and beauty is not on the map. Some people kind of minimize the the scariness of, of skiing in extreme conditions, and other people like to brag about it. I can tell you guys are being pretty humble. You're not telling us a whole lot about it, but I'm giving you license here. How extreme is this? How dangerous do you think this really is? I mean, it is absolutely dangerous because you, in the end, you're you're skiing without a rope. And so you're just connected to two skis with bindings and those bindings can, you know, come off and you can catch an edge and you can cross a tip or whatever. And if you're exposed and it's, it's, it's icy enough and you're going to start sliding in a hurry and it's going to be bad. And so it is, um, and the same thing on the climbing. I mean, you're, you got, you've got your cramp on, you got your ice axe and, and, and that's it, you know, um, one little slip and you start moving too quick and it's going to be, it's going to be hard to self arrest. So it is, and you just have to have confidence in, in, in your knowledge and your skills and, and concentrate on the moment at hand, I guess is, is kind of how, how people do it. Yeah. You know, I skied Evans, which I mentioned to you before the show and, um, Broke my thumb at the top, so I had to ski with a broken thumb. And I was on the, the 200 skinnies, not the 205s, but the 200 skinnies. So it's jump turns in a really tight, you know, really tight coulard with a drop if you miss your turn. Uh, about 100 feet of air, <laughs> maybe more. And I have to say that I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. But looking back on it, I think, wow, what if more had gone wrong and I had gone off that drop? And so... I don't know. How do you deal with Brittany? How did you deal with those uh, those possibilities? Well, I think you know every time you're skiing something, and um, you know, on a fourteener especially, uh, you know, it's it's a no fall zone, so you don't even think about falling. Um, thankfully, I think Frank and I had have very solid uh ski foundations where we that never even crossed our minds a lot of times um and then you know we're we ski we ski in here in crested butte all the time and in bounds and that is one of the best training grounds for some of the steeper terrain for that so we're just a kind of accustomed to being in that situation and it just doesn't cross our minds anymore um but you know something in your case you mentioned that you you actually jumped down um, to a point where you felt you could put on your skis. Well, we probably wouldn't have even put ourselves in that situation. We would have actually put our skis on in the top 
then sidestep down rocks if we needed to, um, to get to a point where we needed to ski, we would have sacrificed our skis instead of ourselves um, in a safer position. So you just get used to making those choices and, um, it becomes some such second nature that we don't think about it that much anymore. I think a lot of it comes from having just really good skiing skills. And in Crested Butte, you couldn't pick a better place to, to earn those skills. Yeah. That's awesome. So give us a quick rundown, just because you mentioned it. Crested Butte is an amazing ski town in central Colorado. Um, some people might say it's southwest Colorado. But tell us a little bit about um, what it's like to live in Crested Butte and to ski at that ski area and then the backcountry skiing in the area, too. Um, well, yeah, I've, I've been here in Crested Butte for, for 20 years now, actually, straight out of um, college. And, and it's where I chose to live because because of the steep terrain um, that you can't really find anywhere else in Colorado. And and it did help. Um, as, as we're talking about now, there's there's a lot of steep skiing here. Um where you are exposed and you, you know, you could fall off of, um, off a cliff or whatever. And, um, it's just a great lifestyle. I mean, a lot of people move here and, and they take a pay cut, but, but their, um, you know, their quality of life increases because we, you know, we don't have traffic. We don't have, we, we don't have crime. We don't really have, you know, you, we're just kind of here and if we're going downtown we jump on the bus and and just it's pretty easy living here in a lot of a lot of ways maybe not financially but in in most ways um it's just it's just good to be here and then of course in the summer we've got all the mountain biking and hiking and um going back to the skiing the backcountry here is i mean it's tough to beat um the area to the west of here kebler pass Irwin gets as much snow as anywhere in Colorado. It's, you know, it's regularly 500 inches or more a year. And that, that gives us a good, good solid, um, snowpack in general compared to thinner areas. So it's a good place to be. Uh, it's, and it's we're, an amazing we're, place. We're so lucky too, because we live right across the street from the ski area. We live in a very tiny place, but we, it's a five minute walk to get to the chairlift and, you know, we can take our bikes right out of our door and be on some of the best single track in the world. So, you know, it's pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, that's just a dream life. One of the common themes we also hear is that people decided to um, opt out of the standard American dream, you know, with the the job and the, the 4,000 square foot house and the two and a half kids and the dog and and the long commutes and crazy hours at the office, a lot of our guests have said, no, no, that's not the life I want. And there's sacrifices involved. You mentioned that, um, you know, living in a mountain town like Crested Butte, it's harder to earn a lot of money, but the benefits there, you're living a richer life. If people wanted to consider an alternative to this standard American dream to live a more adventure-filled life, what advice would you have for them? You know, it's just such a choice. Like, for us, the American dream is not a dream at all. Like That just seems so stifling to us. You know, we need to be in the outdoors. We need that, you know, if, if you take that away from us, that just kind of kills who we are. So, you know, I think everything is, is a conscientious choice. Um, since then, I've had friends who have come up to me and said, hey, 
you know, you moved across the butte, you know, do you love it? Do you think you made the right choice? And I've always said, yes, is the best choice I ever made in my life besides marrying Frank. But, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and then I'll have other friends come up to me and say, Hey, I'm thinking about moving to a ski town. What do you think of that? Um, and I say, do it. And they're like, oh, well, I think that's going to be my plan in five years. And I say, no, no, you got to do it now. If you want to do it, like do it as soon as you can, because the longer you wait um, to make cha- big changes in your life, the harder it becomes because you just become more accustomed and more comfortable with your situation. So if you know that you are you, that you want to be in a different place, I say just make that change as soon as as, re- as as reasonably possible. It's like Warren Miller said, if you don't do it now, you'll be one day older when you do. <laughs> Something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great, Frank. And that's all the time we have today, folks. That concludes part one of Brittany and Frank Consella's amazing interview about skiing all of Colorado's 14ers. It was such a pleasure to have them on the show. Be sure to listen in on Friday for part two when you get to hear the rest. And in part two, there will be more information about how to do this, about equipment, and some funny stories about their adventures. So make sure you don't miss that one. We'll see you Friday. Hey, come be a guest on our show. All you need to do is go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the Contact Us button.